Public accommodations, what are the limits? Same-sex marriage is now the law of the land, uh, and that's a good thing in my view. While Justice Kennedy's majority opinion made a hash of the reasoning, Obergefell versus Hodges was a rather simple case. States need not be in the business of licensing marriage, but if they are, they can't draw a line the way they did. Nobody's hurt by a big gay wedding. Unfortunately, some people are now using that very basic lesson in equality under the law to hurt people who disagree with the Supreme Court. The examples are well known and will alas grow as public opinion shifts further in favor of gay marriage. The New Mexico photographer, the Washington florist, the New York farm owners, each of the, these businesses was fined for declining to provide their services for a same-sex ceremony. Adding insult to injury, the Oregon bakers were assessed $135,000 for causing emotional damages and ordered not to speak about their case. But why? There are more than 100 wedding photographers in the Albuquerque area and plenty of bakers willing to make whatever confections Adam and Steve want for their nuptials in Oregon. This isn't the Jim Crow South, where the government enforced segregation laws, black travelers couldn't find a place to stay for hundreds of miles, and violence was always in the offing. Businesses now attract customers, including and especially straight customers, by advertising their gay friendliness. Moreover, there's a difference between denying service to certain kinds of people and declining to participate in certain kinds of events. Should gay photographers be forced to work fundamentalist celebrations? Should blacks be forced to work KKK rallies? Should environmentalist bakers, plenty of those in Oregon and Washington and elsewhere, be forced to make bear claws for job fairs in logging communities? And this goes beyond gay weddings. Through an ever-growing list of mandates and regulations, government compulsion squeezes out civil society and foments social classes, clashes. Look at some of the lower court rulings in the contraceptive mandate cases where judges decided that they know better than priests and nuns what constitutes a burden on religion. The most basic principle of a free society is that the government can't willy-nilly force people to do things that violate their beliefs. Some may argue that in the wedding cases there's a conflict between religious freedom and gay rights. But I think that's a false choice, as President Obama would say. In any event, here to help us wade through this thicket are Roger Pallon, Mark Rienzi, and Louise Melling, who I'll introduce uh, before each speaks. First, Roger Pallon, who is the founding director of Cato Center for Constitutional Studies, the founding publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and the inaugural holder of Cato's B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies. Before joining Cato, he held five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at the Departments of State and Justice, and was a national fe fellow at the Hoover Institution. In 1989, the Bicentennial Commission presented him with its Benjamin Franklin Award for Excellence in Writing on the Constitution. In 2001, Columbia University's School of General Studies awarded him its Alumni Medal of Distinction. Roger holds a BA from Columbia, an MA and PhD from the University of Chicago, and a JD from the George Washington University Law School. Thank you, Ilya, and thank you, audience, for that belated applause. Um, at lunch, uh, Doug uh, Laycock uh, anticipated what uh, several of us, uh, all of us, are going to be saying here, and Ilya has just anticipated my remarks, um, so we'll talk about that later, Ilya. <laughs> he works for me. Um, let me uh, uh, address, however, straightforwardly, the issue that uh, we've got before us, um, 
America was founded, of course, largely by people fleeing religious persecution, yet today our own government uh, restricts religious liberty in countless ways that a properly read constitution would prohibit. Uh, on this panel, we'll be looking at that development as it concerns public accommodations, but that term is ambiguous. It usually refers to businesses that serve the public, uh, but it can also refer to accommodations that public or governmental programs may or may not make for a variety of human rights and interests, including religious practices. I'll focus mainly on the first sense regarding vendors who um, uh, recently have been prosecuted for declining to participate in same-sex ceremonies. But at the end, I'll touch on the second sense, first uh, regarding accommodations for religious organizations otherwise compelled to participate in Obamacare's contraceptive mandate, and secondly, regarding the administration's recent directive to schools to accommodate transgender students, uh, which implicates the religious liberty of other students and their parents. Uh, as many of you know, and as, Cato, as um, Ilya suggested, we at Cato have long supported both religious liberty and gay rights, at least insofar as the agendas of each is consistent with liberty under limited constitutional government. Last year, for example, in Obergefell v. Hodges, our amicus brief argued that if government provides benefits to opposite-sex couples, it must do so for same-sex couples as well. But if we draw the line when same-sex couples turn around and use government to force vendors against their religious beliefs to participate in same-sex ceremonies, as happens too often today. In Oregon, in Oregon, for example, a Christian couple who owned a bakery were fined $135,000 and bankrupted after they declined to custom design a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. In Washington State, the state's attorney general and the ACLU are suing a florist who declined on religious grounds to design custom floral arrangements for a long-time customer's same-sex ceremony. And in Phoenix, in an especially egregious case, two young female artists are suing to overturn a city ordinance that threatens fines of $2,500 and six months in jail for each day that a business, including an artistic business, communicates any message publicly that would make someone feel unwelcome based on the person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or any one of a number of other characteristics. I'm not making that one up. I could go on with many other examples, but you get the picture. These are small business owners, vendors who are perfectly willing to serve all customers in their ordinary course of business, and they do. But whether they're bakers, florists, caterers, entertainers, whatever, they're asking simply not to be forced to participate in an event that offends their religious beliefs. So how did we get to this point? Here's a quick political and legal history. Despite having fled religious persecution, uh, we were often less than tolerant once we landed here, as we heard in several of the talks this morning. But by the time we became independent and then reconstituted ourselves, we were fortunate to have had several religious denominations, no one of which dominated. At a national level, even if not yet at state level, that required us to separate religion and government, 
We did it in the Bill of Rights, of course, and in time we applied those rights against the states. But it wasn't simply for practical reasons that we separated church and state. From the outset, we were animated by individual liberty and by the natural rights the common law rested on. Among other things, that law and those natural rights guaranteed freedom of association in our private affairs, including our religious affairs. And freedom of association included the right not to associate, in other words, to discriminate, for any reason, good or bad, or no reason at all. There were limited common law exceptions, of course. Monopolies, especially from government, and common carriers had to serve all comers. And to a lesser extent, especially if other options were unavailable to the public, if you held your business as open to the public, you might be held to that representation, although you didn't have to serve unruly customers, for example, and you could still negotiate over services. Modern forced association arose with progressive and New Deal employment and labor laws. But the format issue in today's public accommodation cases flowed from the 1960s civil rights movement. The long overdue 64 Civil Rights Act brought an end finally to the deplorable state-sanctioned public discrimination in the South, Jim Crow. But the act also prohibited private discrimination in several areas and on several grounds, both of which have expanded over the years in both federal and state law. However inconsistent with the basic private right to freedom of association, that extension of anti-discrimination law was probably necessary in the context to break the back of institutionalized racism in the South. It's at the root of the issues before us here, however, because private vendors asking only to be left alone to practice their faith are charged with discrimination. To complete this legal background, however, I need to mention uh, the Supreme Court's 1990 decision in Employment Division v. Smith, which Doug talked about at lunch, where the court held that a person's religious beliefs do not excuse him from compliance with otherwise valid law, in this case, the Controlled Substances Act. That led Congress to enact the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, which has since been held to apply only against the federal government. Nevertheless, 20 states have enacted their own RIFRAs of various kinds. At the same time, other states have enacted anti-discrimination statutes covering various grounds, including sexual orientation. And to this maze of often conflicting law, we should add that courts may and do invoke the imprecise common law principles I mentioned earlier to decide one way or the other in these public accommodations cases. The upshot of all of this, as a practical matter, is that in deciding these cases, whether constitutionally, statutorily, or under common law, it's possible that judges will be able to discern and administer a distinction between legitimate discrimination resting on religious objections to participating in offensive ceremonies and illegitimate discrimination resting on the refusal to serve customers in the ordinary course of business. But that remains to be seen. Stepping back, however, notice first that RIFRA is an effort to restore a constitutional right by a statute. But more telling still, 
Notice the word restoration in these RIFRA statutes. What have we come to when we have to restore religious liberty, our first freedom? Indeed, as RIFRA's very title implies, religious liberty is treated today as an exception, if and when it's granted, to the general power of government to rule. Yet if Smith's principle, basic principle is correct, that religious beliefs offer no exception to rules of general applicability, rules against murder, rape, and robbery, for example, it follows that the more rules proliferate beyond what liberty requires, the more religious liberty will be restricted. Indeed, what better recent example of that than Obamacare? The president's mantra, we're all in this together, captures that connection perfectly. If indeed we are all in this together, then religious organizations will find themselves importuning government to be excused from the offensive mandates the administration promulgates. They'll have to plead for accommodations. And so too with the administration's recent transgender directive to schools. The connection between religion and sexual modesty is as old as the Garden of Eden. And the issues are especially acute during adolescence. Yet in the name of not discriminating against the tiny minority of students who identify with a gender different than their biological and genetic gender, the administration has ordered trans girls to shower with cis girls. For those of you unfamiliar with these terms, that means boys who identify as girls showering with girls. As justification for this arrangement, the ACLU has just issued a memo baldly asserting that this does not, quote, undermine anyone's privacy. And further, and here I'm going to give the original emphasis, that, and I quote, no one has a legally cognizable privacy interest in not sharing space with another person of the same sex just because that other person is different from them in certain respects. I'll ignore the contradiction in that statement and note simply that apparently we're all in this together extends literally to school showers. The general point, however, should be clear. How could this state of affairs be otherwise? When, we're stray, when we've strayed so far in so many ways from principled constitutionalism, the sheer scope of government today at all levels ensures that conflicts over religious liberty will be ubiquitous. And so I conclude that more even than a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, we need a Freedom Restoration Act, which of course is what the Constitution was meant to be. Thank you. Well, it seems that Roger returned the favor in stepping on one of my questions that I had prepared regarding the Freedom Restoration Act. In fact, I'd, I'd written a piece in National Affairs last year proposing an omnibus 
Freedom Restoration Act or OFRA uh, uh, to broaden uh, RIFRA in certain ways. But nevertheless, uh, that's, uh, that's a good tit for tat there, there Roger. Uh, we'll now hear from Mark Rienzi, who is an associate professor at Catholic University of America Columbus School of Law, where he teaches constitutional law, religious liberty, torts, and evidence. He has been voted Teacher of the Year three times, and his litigation and research interests focus on the First and Fourteenth Amendments. As a litigator, he has represented a range of parties asserting First Amendment claims in courts across the country. Indeed, Mark is also senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, a nonprofit, nonpartisan religious liberty law firm dedicated to protecting the free expression of all religious faiths. At the Beckett Fund, Mark has successfully represented a variety of parties at the Supreme Court, including the Little Sisters of the Poor uh, and uh, Hobby Lobby. He clerked for Judge Stephen F. Williams on the D.C. Circuit, earned his J.D. from Harvard, and his B.A. from Princeton, my other alma mater. Go Tigers. Uh, and uh, he may have something to disagree with uh, Professor Laycock's uh, lunch remarks. So this really is, a, I think, a working out to be a nice segue. Thank you. Thanks, Ilya. Thank you for the introduction. Um, it's great to be here at Cato. Um, as Ilya said, I have lots of jobs. Um, I also have lots of clients, many of whom may disagree about the issues we're talking about today. So I'm speaking up here on my own behalf rather than any of my employers or clients. Um, and I'll get to my disagreements with Professor Laycock, which are not many. Um, toward the end, because I want to address the key issues for the panel first. Um, Americans hold a wide variety of beliefs, different beliefs, on the big issues in life. Americans disagree about sex, religion, marriage, life, death, capital punishment. Um, and generally speaking, I think that's a very healthy thing in a pluralistic democracy. And I think it's an unhealthy thing to empower the government to punish those disagreements and to level them out and to enforce conformity. And as a general matter, I think that the current use of public accommodations laws in the same-sex marriage context generally, but more broadly, um, can have that effect, uh, the effect of trying to use public accommodations laws to wipe out opinions or viewpoints that you just don't like and that you don't think people should be allowed to have. Um, I think it's useful to broaden our perspective a little bit beyond the cake bakers and the florists and the same-sex weddings. I think they're part of it, but I think it's useful to take a step back and think more broadly about the ways in which thoughtful people on all sides of these big questions uh, draw lines in their lives about what they're willing to stand for, what they're willing to support um, with their own activities and participate in, what they're willing to support with their own money. Um, so just to give you a handful and to, and to give you a broader sense of, of the possible conflicts here. Um, a couple years ago, Chipotle, um, which is near and dear to my heart for many, many reasons, um, Chipotle refused to cater the Boy Scouts Jamboree in Utah. Um, and the reason they refused to cater it is that they had a deep disagreement with the Boy Scouts' then view on the role of gay scoutmasters. Chipotle said, we think their view is incompatible, incompatible with our views about equality and what's good and right in the world, and we can't make the burritos for the Boy Scout Jamboree. Um, many just regular citizens feel the same way about shopping at Chick-fil-A, right? A few years ago, there was a big controversy about the owner of Chick-fil-A making remarks about gay people and same-sex marriage. Um, a whole lot of people said, I don't want a penny of my money going to support that, right? I won't eat his chicken sandwich because I disagree with his beliefs. And a whole lot of other people, by the way, said the exact opposite. I want to buy a chicken sandwich from that guy because of his beliefs. Um, 
We see this in other contexts, too. Pfizer just recently announced that it won't be selling uh, some of its drugs to state corrections offices because they don't want them used in capital punishment. Now, it's the same drug that Pfizer makes for lots of other contexts, and they sell it. It's not a, it's not a death penalty drug. It's a barbiturate that um, calms people down before the government kills them, right? But Pfizer said, I'm just reporting the facts. Um, <laughs> Pfizer, Pfizer has a moral belief about this, right? Pfizer believes it's in the business of healing. And it says, I'm not going to sell this drug for that use, right? I do not want to be involved in capital punishment. And pharmacists across the country take the same view about that. A much smaller number of pharmacists take the view that they can't sell emergency contraceptive drugs, right? Drugs that they think are going to end a human life after the moment of conception. Um, we, of course, again, the, the issue most front and center, we see this in the same-sex marriage context, right? The florist who says, I can't design flowers for that wedding, or the baker who says, I can't bake a cake, or the calligrapher, as Roger said. Um, we also see it on the other side, right? There's a cake baker in Colorado who refused to bake a cake with a quote from Leviticus on it saying that, that homosexuality was wrong. Um, we see it in Walmart, right? Walmart won't bake Confederate cakes. We see it in cases with printers, the hands-on originals case. The printer won't make the t-shirts for the gay pride parade. Um, I think reasonable people can agree or disagree with any subset of those people um, about the moral stance that they want to take. But I think it's obvious that they're all taking and engaging in essentially First Amendment conduct, right? They're all, at some level, exercising their First Amendment rights to speak or to not speak, to associate or not associate, or to exercise their religion. And actually, I, I left off my list my favorite one, um, which is Bruce Springsteen, right? Bruce Springsteen um, won't play a concert in North Carolina because he disagrees with the state's rules on who can use which bathrooms, right? And, and to Bruce, he's making a moral stand. He's made this moral stand about which politicians can play his, his music, right? Just buying the CD off the shelf, they can't play his music at their campaign stops. Why? Because he disagrees. He doesn't want to be associated with it. So people on all sides of the political spectrum make these stands, I would suggest to you, all the time. Um, and so the question on the table is whether we should use public accommodations laws to pick winners and losers and to say that certain of those actions are off limits and impermissible. And for the most part, I think the answer really is no, we should not, right? It's actually a very bad thing to have the government pick the winners and losers of all those fights that I described, right? Government may want to make the death penalty legal, it's still a really bad thing to force unwilling citizens and unwilling businesses to be part of it, right? In a free society, we ought to probably let them go on their way, and the government ought to probably kill people some other way if Pfizer doesn't want to help out. Um, and it's a bad thing if our government uses public accommodations laws to say that we'll only have burrito makers who agree with one view of marriage or the other, right? That's bad for a lot of reasons, right? It's bad for the burrito makers, or at least for half of them, right? Or whatever percentage of them share whatever state, you know, whatever the in, you know, unapproved view of marriage is at the time, right? It's bad for burrito makers. It's bad for people who are put out of their profession or their career, sometimes in the middle of their lives, right? That's bad. Um, it's also bad for the rest of us, right? We all shouldn't be deprived of the contributions of a diverse society, right? One of the things that makes America good and strong and special, in fact, is that we're a very diverse country, right? And we draw on the benefits of people who are all different races, all different religions, all different sexual orientations, all different political views, all different views about everything. And for the most part, we ought to look around and say, that's a good thing, and it's bad for government to stamp it out, right? And you may think it's kind of frivolous to worry about it with the burrito maker, um, but I'll tell you one place it really matters, which is healthcare, right? So um, just one example. A decade ago, Governor Blagojevich in Illinois said he had to have a rule in the name of advancing the interest of health care um, to require every pharmacist in the state 
to sell emergency contraception. And one of the pharmacists in the state was a guy who owned a small pharmacy in Chicago, right? And you know, one thing that should be really clear is in Chicago, there's a million other pharmacies to choose from, right? You couldn't walk two blocks from this guy's store without tripping over another pharmacy that would happily make the money of selling somebody emergency contraception. Well, the state litigated that case for six or seven years. And at the end of the six or seven years, they actually had to admit that they had no evidence of a single human being who couldn't get the drug because a pharmacist was exercising a religion, right? Not a single human being over six or seven years of litigation. And the same thing, by the way, happened in the state of Washington, which enacted the same rule, and at the end of the six or seven years of litigation there had the same result. No evidence that anyone was harmed. But let me tell you the way in which a lot of people were harmed, right? A lot of people were harmed because some pharmacies had to close because of that rule. And some pharmacists left the state of Illinois because of that rule at a time when the state had a documented shortage of pharmacies. Right? The American College of OBGYNs estimates that by 2030, we'll have a shortage of 9,000 OBGYNs in the country. It's a big number. It's actually a pretty bad policy to tell them at the front door, listen, you're either all in for everything an OBGYN can do, including partial birth abortion or whatever the most advanced kind of abortion is permitted in whatever place, or you're not in at all and you're not welcome in that profession. You could do that, right? but what you will end up with is far less health care for far fewer people. Right? And it's not actually a good way to do it. Um, and it's wholly unnecessary. Right? It's wholly unnecessary in most cases. Um, none of this is to say that the harm claimed when someone's turned down for a service they want is not often real and painful. Right? When we disagree about big, important stuff, then those disagreements can often, often be painful. Right? It is surely painful to have somebody tell you that your sexual identity or your religious identity is wrong or immoral or, or whatever else, so bad that I want nothing to do with it, right? That's painful. Um, and I would say it's obvious in these cases that what's motivating the use of public accommodations law is, in fact, an effort to avoid that hurtful message, right? That it is hurtful to be told, I don't want to be part of your wedding, or I think your religious beliefs are evil, awful, and wrong. That that's hurtful, and that we want to avoid that. Um, so I don't deny that that's hurtful. I think it very often can be hurtful. But as a First Amendment matter, we've got really clear doctrine saying that that kind of hurt cannot override people's First Amendment freedoms. Right? And that's old doctrine that's often been unanimous doctrine from the Supreme Court. Um, that's cases like Hurley, the, uh, the gay group that wanted to participate in the St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston, or recently Snyder v. Phelps. Right? Um, what could be more hurtful than showing up at the funeral of a, of a kid who just died in Iraq saying, you know, people are going to burn in hell, and God hates fags, and God hates Catholics? Right? You know, they hold up really evil, awful, mean signs at the funeral. Well, of course, that's deeply hurtful and painful to people. But we have a long tradition, and I think a good tradition in this country, of saying even when the speech is awful, hateful, and hurtful, we need to protect it. And we protect it precisely because we don't want the government to be picking the winners and losers and choosing what speech to exclude from the public square and what messages are wrong. Um, and the alternative, I would just point out, is very bad. Right? I think it would be a very bad thing if you could force the pro-choice printer to print pro-life pictures. I think it would be bad if you could force the atheist photographer to go take pictures of the Catholic ordination. Um, I think it would be bad if you could force the gay rights convention to let the Westboro Baptist Church have a booth. Um, in a free country, I don't think you do those things, and I don't think you should do those things. I don't think that feels like civil liberties. I think that feels like government-enforced orthodoxy. 
And in virtually all of the public accommodations cases we're talking about, there is no, there's no parallel to the Jim Crow South. In other words, there's no indication that what we've got is a broad denial of service where there's not another willing cake baker or there's not another willing florist. In, one of, in the florist case, I think, the actual damages claimed were seven bucks, seven bucks worth of gas costs to go to the next florist. Um, that is not something over which a, uh, a diverse and liberal pluralistic society should let the government steamroll somebody else's civil rights. Um, and lastly, lastly, let me point this out. Uh, Ilya started with Obergefell. Um, I don't think that sort of steamrolling of the other side is what the Supreme Court had in mind in Obergefell. Right? Obergefell is built on this idea, and Obergefell calls um, the belief in man and woman version of marriage a, a, a belief that people hold through good and decent and honorable religious and philosophical beliefs. Right? They don't say that this is evil, awful, and wrong and for the government to eradicate. Um, instead, they say that the problem is not individuals and groups holding that belief. But it is when you enshrine that belief in law and use it to make outlaws and outcasts of other people. Um, I would just say, I think the use of public accommodations laws to beat down people who have what is now the disfavored view of marriage and to tell them that you're not welcome any place, right? You can't bake a cake. You can't make flowers. You can't do any of those things. Um, that is totally contrary, totally contrary to the view of, of pluralism tolerance that was in the Obergefell opinion. Obergefell says marriage is really, really, really important. And that's why the government can't dictate what's a good view of marriage and what's a bad view of marriage. Um, if you take that seriously, I don't think you can fairly say, and it's so important that the government can steamroll the florist or the baker to being part of it. Um, lastly, let me just end, because Ilya raised um, Doug Laycock's remarks about the contraceptive mandate. I don't, I don't see Doug. I'm not sure if he's still here. Um, but I'm sure Doug would pretty much know what I'm going to say. Um, I liked most of what Doug said. Um, but I think he's wrong on the contraceptive mandate case for this simple reason. Um, as the government ultimately made clear at the Supreme Court in that case, um, they actually are trying to take over the health plans of these groups, right? The, the only way the the mandate that they've organized works is, in fact, to use the health plans of these groups. So it's not separate. It's actually directly using them. The government admitted that a little bit at oral argument, admitted it much more in the supplemental briefs that the Supreme Court asked for. Um, so that is a case where the government is insisting on forcing people to be involved in things that violate their beliefs. And it is one that is wildly unnecessary in a world with the exchanges, right? I mean, if, if you can enact the Affordable Care Act, and if you can have these government-run exchanges, um, it's pretty easy to see where people can get their health plans if they want to get health plans that have stuff the nuns can't offer them. The administration is selling them right next door on the exchanges, right? So once the government has set up that alternative source, it's pretty easy to see where people can get it. And it's pretty unnecessary to see that you need nuns um, to give out contraceptives. So I'll stop there. Thanks a lot. Now we'll hear a uh, somewhat different view. I'm very curious myself uh, how, how much uh, or, or little uh, agreement there might be on these issues. Um, Louise Melling is a deputy legal director at the ACLU and the director of its Center for Liberty, which encompasses the ACLU's work on reproductive freedom, women's rights, LGBT rights, and the freedom of religion and belief. In this role, she leads the ACLU's work to address the intersection of religious freedom and equal treatment. Before becoming deputy legal director, Louise was director of the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project, in which capacity she oversaw nationwide litigation, communications, public education campaigns, and advocacy efforts in the states. 
Louise has been with the ACLU since 1992. She's a graduate of Yale Law School and was a law clerk to Judge Morris Lasker of the Southern District of New York. Uh, and in addition to whatever she's prepared, Roger opened the door to talk about the uh, directive and letters regarding uh, transgender uh, bathrooms and locker rooms. And of course, Mark talked about florists and other things where the ACLU finds itself in a litigation posture on the other side. So I'm uh, very curious to hear what you say about all of that stuff. Louise. Okay, so I think you have to give me a little credit for being here, right? Um, and uh, stepping up after Doug Laycock did a presentation about the ACLU and our stances. And I could also say this morning when somebody asked me at Starbucks whether I was going to the United State of Women down the street, I said, no, I'm going to Cato um, as the only woman on today's program, as pointed out earlier today. Um, so look. I'm not naive. I'm not here to think that I'm going to persuade you to come to my side at the end of 10 minutes. What I'd like to use my time doing here is, <laughs> cool. um, is to talk to you about why we have come as an organization that cares about religious liberty and about equality to where we are. And I think almost more importantly, as I've listened to the conversation today, to sort of bring to mind or offer my view about what the harms are, either of, of doing what I think I'll, I'll see some people as saying is nothing. Like, I view, I view regulating public accommodations as essential, and if we don't do, if we don't have that regulation, we are doing something. Somebody is being hurt today if we aren't regulating, and I understand well the position that somebody is being hurt if we do regulate. What I'd like to do is give voice to, give a face to the harms so that when you think about the issues, the consequences of the positions that we're all taking in our different spheres are, are robust. I learned that lesson sort of at the ACLU when we think about speech consequences versus equality principles. One of the most important things is that as we go forward, we really understand what we're doing. And I think in particular that we don't downplay or dare I even say sort of mock the claims of other sides. Um, so I want to start with a little background, a little context, and then my shtick. Um, for way of background, one of the things I want to say about the conversation about accommodations is just to remind you in this context and in others to just sort of ask a series of questions, because I don't think all accommodations are the same in terms of how we view them or what kinds of questions we might ask. So is it for an institution or for an individual? That will have different consequences in terms of who gets affected. If it's an institution, in particular an institution that's opening its doors to, to a diverse group of people, people of faith, opening its doors on the streets, the institution's claim will carry on to and have a consequence for others in a way that's harder to accommodate or sort of compensate for if it's an individual. If it's an individual, is it a government actor or is it a private actor? I think there's a difference there. Um, Cato might even agree with me on that. I don't know. Um, and is there government funding coming into the institution? Because I think that too can be a factor. As we look at the concept, as we look at the debate today, one of the other reminders is to pay attention. I think between instances where there is a mandate, we're talking about an accommodation or an exception, an exception to a rule of non-discrimination. That's sort of where I'm focusing here. It's an it's an exception to a rule when we're talking. And it is about conduct, in my view. 
what we're talking about or what I'm concerned about isn't all speech in that sense. We want to distinguish between speech and we want to distinguish between conduct. And we want to distinguish between false claims and real claims. The claim about discriminating against, I'm sorry, the bear claw person, that is not, there is no mandate to protect or a step up to end discrimination against bear claw people. Um, in, in the way. There is not a social problem of discrimination that we're trying to address. Whether or not you agree that this is the right way, those are sort of false comparisons, I think, in many respects. I think it's also important to put this in context. The context today, and this is very clear from today's conversation, we have seen a dramatic increase in the conversation about public accommodations, about the calls for exemptions, about the claims for accommodations in the last, I'll say, four to five years. We're seeing them robustly in the context of, of Hobby Lobby et al., and we're seeing them robustly in the context of public accommodations. We're seeing it in the context of healthcare. We're seeing those, those claims robustly because, in my view, we're at a period of radical social change in some sense. I, I often say it's as if the titanic plates are shifting. We're at a place where, in my view, at last, we're having very robust, meaningful conversations and step forward so as to preserve and protect and recognize the equality of our LGBT brothers and sisters in, in this country. We're having conversations about contraception because we're stepping up to address disparities in healthcare. We're stepping up to recognize and try to address issues about women's equality. You don't, we can have robust disagreements about what the government's role is in that, but I think that's absolutely what's happening. We saw these claims for exemptions rise at the time of the Civil Rights Act when we were stepping up to actually have the government come in and protect civil rights and to protect and advance um, equality rights for African Americans. It's in part because we're in that moment that we're, we're seeing radical changes, radical demands for difference in terms of how we treat one another and, and for people to step up and be recognized as equal. At those moments, of course, there's going to be conflict because there is a moment of radical change. And it is not as if, if we do nothing, everything is okay. Stepping up means stepping up to protect LGBT. LGBT people, for example, in the context of the public accommodations and services. Not doing that means that we have consequences for LGBT people. I mean, it's sort of a, everybody, both sides have an interest. Both sides have a, have a stake. And if we don't have the government act, there is an action by virtue of that in terms of what happens. So in terms of thinking about the harm, that's the context. And oh, I skipped one, you know, spoiler alert. ACLU's bottom line position. We all have the right to our religious beliefs, but our religious beliefs do not give us a right to infringe on others. They do not give us a right to harm others. They do not give us a right to discriminate. That is, and as far as institutions that open their doors to people in these contexts, we do not support exemptions at all because of that, that principle of harm. Part of that is rooted in, in a recognition of harm that is, as Doug Laycock was talking about, a harm of dignity. I differ on how the law treats it. I differ on its roots. And I differ in terms of thinking it's taken care of because you can go down the street and you can get your flowers somewhere else. So I'll talk about a client. Clients go to plan a wedding, look on the website, find a venue, show up, talk about the wedding. I think it's one of the one person from the couple and a mother venue learns that, in fact, it's a same-sex couple. It's two women. And writes a note saying, we will not serve you. 
There is indeed a dignity harm, whether you agree with how it gets addressed. There is a dignity harm of having somebody shut the door on you. Imagine the dignity harm of your child. Imagine the dignity harm for your mother sitting there as you get turned away. There's an alternative. Some people say, mm, we can fix that. We could put up a sign. We could put up a sign like my partner's parents encountered when they moved to London. No Catholics, blacks, or dogs rented here for rental here. We could do that. But you have to agree that there's a harm in being turned away no matter what you want to say about fixing it. And that harm? That harm is not a First Amendment harm that is solely neglected. I'm going to quote from the Senate Commerce Committee in the context of the Public Accommodations Law of the Civil Rights Act. The primary purpose is to solve the problem, the deprivation of personal liberty that surely accompanies denials of equal access to public establishments. Discrimination is not simply dollars and cents, hamburgers and movies. It doesn't matter if you can go somewhere else. It is the humiliation, frustration, and embarrassment that a person must surely feel when he is told that he is unacceptable as a member of the public. I'm not here to say that the discrimination against LGBT couples is the same as the discrimination against African Americans in the South in 1964. We don't have to play that contest. But the harm of being turned away no matter what you think is real, and it's a, it's a harm that's been recognized. You can look in cases about it in terms of, of gender, with the court talking about gender-based preemptory challenges and jury. Discrimination can be an assertion of inferiority that denigrates the dignity of the exclusion. And it, yeah, excuse me, dry mouth, and reinvokes a history of exclusion. In Windsor, the court talked about dignity. Van Jones, uh, lots of Van Jones, not the Supreme Court, excuse me. <laughs> but that is the dignitary harm that's at stake. No matter what solution, that harm exists. And I'm, I'm focusing on that harm in part because I also believe that is not the only conversation we should be having about dignity. We do need to hear about the owners of the business and what it means to stop providing cakes, if that's the solution. We do need to hear about what that means for a person of faith and understand what the consequences are in that context as well. I just think that the consequence for the couples sometimes isn't always heard. And I'm sure people think the other way vis-a-vis -vis the story. Then I just want to go to the civil rights movement and talk about the law. In the context of the civil rights movement, people of faith were on both sides of the conversation. People of faith stood up to resist integration, Courts invoked religion to resist integration before the Civil Rights Act, and people of faith stood up in, in support. After the civil, there was a debate in the Civil Rights Act to include a religious exemption, that debate, that exemption was rejected. After the law passed, Piggy Park Barbecue, for example, when charged with refusing to serve African Americans, or at least serve them in the restaurant as opposed to in the takeout, invoked religious liberty. That was resoundingly rejected. Bob Jones University, and um, by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, I, think, I believe it's in the 80s, Bob Jones University, resisting admitting students who believed in interracial dating, argues religious liberty in the face of losing its tax-exempt status. Court says no. Court says compelling state interests. There were plenty of other schools. We were talking like, a I think it's 1980 by that point. There were plenty of other schools to go to. That wasn't the question. So when we look at those cases, the issue, I think, is those cases stand for the proposition 
that religious liberty, at least in those contexts, was understood as in, nobody was disputing the religious faith of the heads of Bob Jones, of Peggy Park, of Goldsboro Church. The issue was whether that was sufficient to overcome the compelling state interest, the interest in ending discrimination. Dignity, I'm not arguing dignity as such, is the compelling state interest, but rather in the terms of the law, the least restrictive means. A compelling state interest in ending discrimination that isn't meant by closing the door, that isn't meant by saying we don't serve you here, that isn't met by a sign that says not you here. In that sense, I think these debates are real. These debates are about genuine clashes. These are debates about people who have genuine faith and people who are striving to finally be welcome into society. When we begin to make the promise, when we begin to make the promise that we will treat you as equal, that promise falls short if every time you walk into a store, you don't know whether you'll be sent away. That's why we have a different position. That's why we'll keep on. At the same time, we're going to stand up. We're going to stand up on behalf of the prisoner in Hoyt v. Holt. We're going to stand up in Abercrombie versus Fitch. We're going to stand up on behalf of the Sikh member who's denied the right to, wear, to enter ROTC when, when he's told that he can't enter because of his turban. Um, but religious liberty just, it, like other rights, has a limit, and that limit comes when you're going to hurt others, including by discrimination. Thank you. Thank you, Louise. When you were listing some of those uh, last cases, that sounds like a list of uh, Marx clients as well. So I think there is some, uh, some overlap um, uh, to be found. Uh, also, when you kept uh, uh, talking about uh, dignitary harm, there's what, what I started thinking about was there's a, a bar at the Marriott Marquis across the street called the Dignitary. So some Friday nights, I know some, I know some Cato staffers uh, uh, do a, a different version of dignitary harm to their livers, I think, at that location. Anyhow, um, before we uh, open it up to Q&A, I want to have some discussion on the panel. Uh, Roger's been sitting here. Uh, I think he uh, has a few things to say. And then, Louise, you can have a, a cerebral mark. I have some questions, but we'll see how things go. Well, I'd like to help you get to that drink, uh, Louise. Um, the, um, I like my scotch neat. <laughs> oh, and by the way, people can tweet their questions at me, hashtag protectRL. I'll get it here. Roger. Okay. Uh, the gravamen of the argument rests upon this idea of dignitary harm, which is as loose, a, a vague, as vague a term as one could possibly come up with. I mean, if you look at me the wrong way, I can claim harm. Uh, we can get really ridiculous cases, and the idea that you should have an action at law for feeling offended is a prescription for full employment for lawyers, among other things. But as long as you're going to go that route, you are saying that rejection, when you go into the, uh, um, to the, the baker and you ask for a custom-made cake, is harmful. Um, so too is the obligation of the baker or their entertainer or the, the um, caterer to participate in your same-sex wedding harmful. And I dare say it's much more harmful to that religious believer than it is to you 
by being told simply, no, we'd prefer not to uh, provide you with this service. But I don't want to rest the issue entirely on weighing the harms because that gets us into the issue of whose values count for more. The deeper issue is where the presumption lies. And this is exactly what we lost when we, in the 64 Civil Rights Act, decided to prohibit private discrimination. And again, I think in that context, all things considered, it was absolutely necessary. How long it's going to be necessary is another question. Uh, Justice um, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor spoke of 25 years. Uh, she hoped we wouldn't have to be discussing these affirmative action type cases. But in any event, the idea is that once you go down this road, you have flipped the presumptions. Now it's a matter not of justifying why you come together, but justifying why you uh, want to be or have a right not to associate with the other person. And I go back right back to old contract law and common law right of association. Essentially, people, the, the presumption is on the side of not association. When people can finally agree on all the terms, then they associate. The common law had this right to treat, which was essentially you had a business, someone walked in, you started negotiating over terms of service and price. If you couldn't reach an agreement, then you left. One of the terms of agreement is whether you shall cater this same-sex wedding, whether you shall open your farm to a wedding by same-sex couples at your uh, farm, uh, and so on and so forth. So it seems to me that when you reverse the presumptions, you are indeed in this world in which we're all in this together, and the burden is upon you to show why you want to opt out, not the burden upon, or rather, not the original, the old common law approach whereby you associated only if you had agreed on the terms on both sides. Um, we've clearly, as a society, made a choice, starting with the Civil Rights Act and in other ways, to address ongoing discrimination that isn't satisfied in the sort of normal common marketplace. You said you can sort of choose to be separate and choose to associate. You can still choose to separate, to associate. You can still have your views. You can still have your religious views. You can still choose um, to be opposed to same-sex marriage, to not want to serve. But once you have a business and you've opened your doors and you're engaging in that kind of conduct, then you're playing by the public rules. And today, you can differ, but today we live in a society where in very limited circumstances, in my mind, I'm sure other people will disagree, but in limited circumstances, we've established a set of rules so as to work to end certain kinds of discrimination so as to say there have been categories of people, tradition, distinct, almost always distinctly minorities, women not being a minority in number, but who are entitled to this, this protection so as to achieve equality. Well, then we're, again, we're right back to an old debate between, and it came out in Randy Barnett's new book, We the People, whether We the People is read as We the People collectively which reduces to majoritarian rule and oftentimes majoritarian tyranny versus we the people individually. That's the debate between us. Can I, uh, 
can I raise an old ACLU case that might be a good one for thinking about this, which is the Nazis in Skokie, right? Um, so one of the things the ACLU did, which I think is a wonderful thing the ACLU did, um, is it, uh, well, just, I want to give you some credit before I criticize you. Um, Don't worry, I knew it was coming. Uh, is fight on behalf of Nazis, the ability of Nazis in the uh, 60s or 70s to march through the town of Skokie, Illinois, where a lot of Holocaust survivors lived. Um, I think we would probably all agree the ACLU did the right thing there. Um, and that in a free society, even if they have hateful, awful, evil views, the Nazis ought to be allowed to march on a public street in a public town, even if it inflicts a lot of dignitary harm on a lot of people who really don't need any more harm piled on their backs. Um, I think the public accommodations question really comes down to the question of, well, what would you do if after the march, the Nazis said, and I want the Jewish restaurant over there to host my party to celebrate my march, or after my march, I want the Jewish baker to bake me the cake to celebrate my awesome Nazi march. Um, to me, in a free society, the answers to both of those questions are clear, which is, sure, the Nazis get to march, and we will allow it and live with it, because in part of being a free society, you really don't want the government able to pick which views are not expressible and which messages are so bad that we're going to squelch them. Um, but I hope the ACLU wouldn't have gone to bat for the Nazis in terms of saying it's not just they have the right to march, but they have the right to make sure that the Jewish baker bakes them the celebratory cake or the Jewish uh, hall hosts their party afterwards. I don't know if that's, to me, that's a pretty clear line. There's a difference between the right to do it in public and the right to force unwilling private people to be part of it. Louise, why would you, with Gary Johnson, force the Jewish baker to bake the Nazi cake? Um, I would happily defend the right not to bake the cake uh, because I think this just this goes back to the difference between message and, and status in a certain sense. So we do not think you can force somebody to bake a particular message on the cake in the sense of unless it turns out to be that you refuse ever to print, for example, the wedding invitations for people who are LGBT. But there's a difference between, often between the words and a protected status. Um, so you, you are choosing sort of more of a pure message. First of all, Nazis aren't a protected status in the context of the, any of the public accommodations laws. Well, so political this is in, in DC and other jurisdictions, oh. political views are a protected status. Uh, most, a lot of public accommodations laws protect political beliefs and associations. National office. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, to me, to me, on the cake baker thing. Well, to, to, yeah. to broaden that question out again, and we have a, we have a question on Twitter from Sharif Gurgis, who is a co-author with uh, Ryan Anderson and Robbie George, who was on a panel before lunch uh, in the book, What is Marriage? Kind of the, uh, the, 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 the fundamental and, and, and best uh, argument uh, against uh, gay marriage from a, from a secular perspective. Uh, and, he, and Sharif asks, should we also let dignitary harm trump some free speech claims? If so, can you give an example? I guess hate speech, offensive well, speech. Well, I, I was just, no, I was just trying to sort through. So I certainly think in terms of we have defend, we stand by the rules prohibiting sexual harassment in the context of a workplace because that will prohibit women from being able to be in, in the workplace. I don't think true threats would, um, I, I don't think anybody would disagree with us on true threats. That's not a dignitary harm. That's a harm, a fear of harm to yourself. Um, I think in terms of how, Cato and others might think about it in terms of speech. 
we certainly def we defend the right of people to say that, of course, you shouldn't have to serve somebody. We defend the right of people to stand outside the bakery and protest. We defend the right of people to stand outside the bakery and say hateful things. We defend the right of people to be outside of the marriage hall saying disturbing things. We defend the right of protesters to be outside the abortion clinics saying... Um, Saying, saying hateful things to women entering or to doctors who provide services. That, however, is different from whether you can turn somebody away from your business because of who they are. In, so in it's, it's, not, it's not dissimilar from what we do around race in terms of a kind of speech we sanction, although we then say when it comes to a workplace, when it comes to a public accommodation, when it comes to education, when it comes to housing, you can't foreclose people from participating in these institutions where you've opened up your doors to so the public. People have to be allowed to be in those, those in, to engage and, and otherwise be served in those institutions, even though we can continue a dialogue and a conversation about that in pretty much nearly as charged a manner as possible. Uh, Louise, but the, the people Mark and I are defending are not turning people away from their business. In the Washington State case, for example, turning only away for this the baker uh, has declined to bake a space, or florist rather, designed to do... Baker in Washington, florist, sorry, no, baker, baker in, in Oregon, Oregon, florist Washington, in Washington. That's it. Yes. The florist the decline to do a special uh, order of flowers for this for, the uh, wedding. for this wedding uh, to for a long time customer. So this this person was a customer for years with this florist. The florist didn't want to go the next step that she saw as actually participating in and, if you will, putting her imprimatur on a same sex wedding. And that's the that's the admittedly sometimes difficult line to draw, and whether it's judicially administrable is also a second question. But if it is, that's the line that we're asking, asking to be drawn. I understand that, and I will say then that you could analogize that to Bob Jones in the sense that Bob Jones wasn't opposed to admitting as I recall, students of different races. Bob Jones was admitted, it was opposed to admitting students who advocated interracial dating, for example. It's, it's co-plaintiff, Goldsboro Christian Schools, was opposed to integration of the school itself. But we still understood that, that the notion of, in that case, the right to interracial dating, or fundamentally, in terms of what it means to be equal as, as LGBT people, is the right to marriage, that turning, once you offer, you, you all said it yourselves, once you offer um, marriage licenses, you can't discriminate. Once you offer cakes and you offer to do wedding cakes, then you can't discriminate and create a distinction as to who is and isn't worthy in that particular fashion. Yes, but the marriage license and the baker are public and private, respectively, yes, no, and that's a big difference. All right, let's open this up to the audience. Now, remember our rules. Please wait to be called on, wait for the mic, and announce your name and affiliation, and actually ask a question. Let's start right here, the gentleman in the white shirt. Thank you, um, Al Milliken, AM Media, and this is for Professor Rienzi, but also anyone else who may be familiar with the recent decision locally that determined against the way Catholic University uh, had dealt with a Muslim faculty member. Were you involved with, or did you have an opinion on that case? No. 
parenting. Uh, though it wasn't mentioned... Uh, Pull the microphone it, up to you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> though it wasn't mentioned, uh, if you want to protect uh, dignity and do no harm, uh, how about all the war dead who are offended when their monuments are torn down because there's a cross on top? I don't see how it can offend atheists who don't believe God exists. Which, which cross? I'm sorry. Well, there, which? there are multiple uh, small towns in America who've had to have their take down their war memorials because they had crosses on them, and the ACLU has uh, backed the people who wanted them down. Yes, we have. Um, for I'll, I'll just have two reasons about that. One is to have a separation of church and state, and the second is to the extent the government is putting up a cross and only a cross, I think it does make people feel like outsiders. And I'll just say that the Establishment Clause prohibits the establishment of religion and commemorated, commemorating war dead um, is simply not the establishment of religion, period. I'll, I'll just have to add that for the, as I believe the ACLU are arguing the case, noted that for the Jewish war dead, it does feel very Christian. So would you oppose a Jewish war memorial? On government property? Yes. I think, I think the answer is yes. Like Arlington Cemetery? Government property? <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I mean, you know. <laughs> included. Exactly. Included. Yes, and that's my point. Is, that, yes. that, that, does not violate the, that that does not violate the establishment clause on government if property to include is. them. Well, well, it means... I welcome we'll, them okay, all. Okay. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll debate the establishment clause at the dignitary afterwards, right? <laughs> Um, the, the lady right there. Yeah. I don't think the mic's on. Is it on now? Yes. Yes. Hi. Yes. I'm Chelsea Langston. I'm with the Center for Public Justice. I just had a question for Ms. Melling. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about how oh, I could leave the mic on. There's been a lot of talk today about cake bakers, and that's an important issue, but it's really not the only issue about religious freedom for institutions, especially religious nonprofit institutions, um, especially with like the right to hire. And uh, this is controversial within most faith communities, but there are people of faith and institutions of faith that support sexual orientation and gender identity non-discrimination laws for with sure. religious exemptions, let's just say for hiring for religious nonprofits. Um, could you comment to that? Um, there's been end of legislation legislation for years? Is there any possibility of any, um, as Doug Laycock said, coming together at all, not with respect to service, but with, re with respect to hiring? Um, no. In the, no, in the sense that for purposes of hiring, well, I, let me qualify that. If, in terms of it is our long-standing position, if you're hiring people of diverse faiths and, and otherwise, then your doors are... For, let me just retract that statement for a second. Excuse me. Um, we advocate that there should be non-discrimination hiring with the exception like of ministerial exceptions in, in other contexts. So especially in the context of religious charities, you're opening your doors up. These are large institutions. They're often serving, servicing, serving people of diverse, diverse faiths. They are... They're hospitals. They're one in six hospitals in America. They are broad public institutions. You don't, 
have a right there to discriminate based on gender identity, sexual orientation. At most, you have a right under Title VII to discriminate based on you can hire co-religionists. So the fact that you can hire co-religionists doesn't mean that you can hire only men, for example. The fact that you can hire co-religionists doesn't mean you know, a whole host of things. And the fact that you can hire co-religionists is not a vehicle to, to discriminate in other grounds. And we think the co-religionists is where it can end. Let's go right here, the lady in the green. Hi, my name is Saba Ahmed. I run a group called the Republican Muslim Coalition. My question is, in Oregon, there was a law on the books for 80 plus years that banned religious attire for um, teachers. And uh, we got that repealed back in 2010. And I was glad to see Beckett Fund support and the ACLU was against it. And it was an uphill climb and the same, um, I was curious to know why ACLU would oppose a headscarf ban. Um, I mean, because that was the issue at heart because that law was, uh, even though it was intended to ban nuns from teaching in public schools, it was actually affecting Muslim teachers who wear the headscarf from uh, teaching in public schools because of their uh, headscarves being interpreted as, as a religious uh, syst- um, symbol in public schools. Uh, schools. So I was curious, like, why that's, because that law still remains in Pennsylvania, and I think it's Nebraska. There's two other states that still have that left, and I was curious why uh, public accommodations, and I was actually very disappointed to see ACLU against us, because usually they're the big supporters for religious liberties. So uh, if you could comment on that. That's, I will admit that that's an area where I have not worked. So I will say that within the sort of bound zones of the ACLU's religion work, and that is a place where I think there is more debate about whether what that means for kids if there's somebody wearing um, religious garb and whether kids, whether that influences kids versus whether people think that that is an important exercise of religious liberty. And I'll just say, um, from our perspective, religious garb bans for people teaching in public school are a way to essentially stamp out our religious diversity and make us all look the same. Um, and that, that is not consistent with the First Amendment and the protection of free exercise of religion. Um, they do things like that in France. In France, uh, last year, they sent, they sent a high school girl home because her skirt was too long. Um, saying that she was ostentatiously being Muslim um, and that they don't want people to ostentatiously look Muslim in the schools. Does that regulation adjust for when the fashion hemlines go up and down? Is, I, I, is it like 20 inches below the fashion standard? Or I, something? I, I, I don't know what ostentatiously long skirts mean, um, but I do think there are two different ways to do religious liberty. One is to stamp out all differences and to say that we're not allowed to be different, we're not allowed to live different ways or look different ways. Um, and the other is to say that actually the government really shouldn't be doing that. Um, and if somebody's a good teacher, um, we ought to take them as they are. I'll just kind of clarify right that if, if it's a general ban, we definitely oppose, like we would, <laughs> if there were a ban of the sort in France, we would oppose that. But I know that there's a debate within the context of public schools, and there may be an answer to that debate, which I, forgive me, I do not know, but I can get back to you if you give me your card. Uh, I'm Amina Dean Ahmed with the Minaret of Freedom Institute. My question is for Louise Melling. It's actually two questions, but they overlap, so I'm and ask them together. Um, You make this distinction between speech and conduct, and yet your argument is on dignity. Do you not think that some words can insult people's dignity even worse than other conduct? And if so, how do you reconcile that? 
And also, why is not the strict scrutiny test a sufficient way to determine whether there is harm justifying state intervention? You want to be, you want to voice the harm that's being done, but it seems to me if there is enough harm done, then you have uh, met the strict scrutiny test. So, so two things. One is, in the context in which I was talking, I was talking about public accommodations and being allowed to enter places. Um, and being allowed to enter places and participate in institutions that I'm going to call public, not in the sense that they're government, but public in the sense that they've opened their doors, I think is a critical element of equality. And that compromise, that rule, we can adopt even if you can still be criticized, even if there's still robust debate, even if you can be sort of yelled at going into, because for institutions like education, services, and um, housing, for example, you shouldn't be denied access to things. Or, and I understand what I can hear the responses, but you're not denied accesses. You can go somewhere else. Um, and so in that context, one of the ways of articulating why we would have that rule is to think about dignity. As, and yes, of course your dignity is hurt if, you're, if you are called names. Of course your dignity is hurt if you are told that you're a sinner, an abomination, all sorts of things. But that is, that is a sort of trade we take in terms of having a discourse and a conversation as opposed to being able to participate and being able to access services and, and enjoy sort of walking in the door, so to speak. Uh, I think the gentleman's question raises, gets us right to the heart of the matter. This idea of dignitary harm is so loose that it allows for virtually any government intrusion. Uh, I mean, it gets us to the Charlie Hebdo case, does it not? The publication of the cartoons uh, constituted a dignitary harm, and there are places in Europe, a number of places, where they restrict that kind of uh, speech. And, uh, you know, in this country, we just have not gone down that road until recent years. We've allowed for robust discussion and robust behavior, um, I suppose probably because the proper American response is, if I may be politically incorrect, man up. You can man up or woman up today for some one of us if... Um, in the context of, if you're allowed in, shall I say, in the sense that if you are, if you have been a member of an excluded class and you have not been able to participate fully in institutions, that is very different. Um, and so, again, public, the laws about anti-discrimination are laws to open up doors. The laws are to ensure that the doors don't close on you and in, in places that we think you should fairly be allowed to walk in. I'm using dignity to articulate one of the ways in which as we advance in society, as we start to see changes, to explain why it still matters, why it is not sufficient to say, just go to another school. Just go to another, just go to a different hospital. Just go to a different store and just go somewhere else because somebody else will take care of you. You could have, you know, we, could, we couldn't say that about the civil rights movement in the context perhaps of the South, but people could have said, oh, well, I mean, I'm, I can't even bear to say this. You could have moved north or you didn't have to want to go to Bob Jones University. You didn't have to want to go to Christian, the Goldsboro Christian schools. You didn't have to want to go to those places. You could have just manned up and found services somewhere else. That was not
not sufficient there. We understood what that meant. This is not the same story. I'm not saying this is the same story, but some of the harm, some of the conversations, would you say the same things? Would you ask those same questions in the other context? And if not, why not? And then at least think through what you want to say in today's version of the civil rights struggle. We'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to leave it there, I'm afraid. I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. I just want to uh, thank Louise uh, for coming and uh, braving her, her panelists. I, 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 sh I should say, I, I just saw uh, who I guess is your boss, Steve Shapiro, on, on, on Saturday, outgoing uh, boss, the eight, longtime ACLU legal director. And Cato uh, has combined with ACLU on a whole host of issues over the years on uh, both in terms of advocacy and uh, uh, and uh, amicus briefs uh, specifically. So whether you succeed, Steve, or somebody else, I look forward to future such uh, occasions uh, as well. Anyway, let's thank our panelists.